Hello and welcome to the Hockey Assist, a basketball podcast. on the game by connecting what's happening on the court to the sport at large. My name is Nolan Cope, and here is my co-host, Riley Gaucher. What up, Mr. Cope? How are we doing this week? You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a really good week this week. Things, uh, things seem to be coming, coming together uh in in my life seems things are going well at school and you know i'm i'm a happy guy i'm a happy guy what about you that's that's good to hear i i don't know many times where you haven't been a happy guy as long as i've known you but uh glad glad to hear that this week is particularly good for you i'm i'm good it was really nice to have a long weekend and so i'm i'm been enjoying that and yeah, getting ready for the grind to really start for this quarter, but otherwise cannot complain. Love it. I love to hear it. And I'm excited to be back here with you recording another episode. Last week, we had two episodes recorded, one on our normal schedule. We were talking about the league's response to COVID-19, but that was quickly dwarfed by the larger news story of the James Harden trade which you and I broke down pretty well. And so yeah, I was, I was really of those proud episodes, of those. Please go back and take a look at them. One of the cool things about our podcast is that these episodes, they don't expire in terms of being able to listen to them after several days, right? The beauty of them is that the conversations we have are based around things happening in the league right now. But because we try to tie it into the bigger picture, into bigger, grander trends in the sport, it uh, makes it so these conversations can be heard after a little bit of time. So if you miss an episode, have no fear, because you can go back and and find those, those important bits of those episodes. Now, Before we begin, I would like to take this moment to ask our listeners a favor. We are enjoying giving this podcast to those of you who are listening, but we would also love to see our message get out there to more people. So if you are listening and enjoying this podcast, please we ask you uh, for a little call to action. Please recommend this podcast to one other person who you think would enjoy it. If you are listening, if you are enjoying it, please pass off that one recommendation to somebody else. If uh, you don't have anyone specifically in mind, give us a shout out on social media or on Twitter because We appreciate you as the listeners, and we hope you appreciate us, and we'll do what you can to help the Hockey Assist message 
reach more basketball fans. And I think it's not just a message, right? It's a conversation that we want to have. You know, we have great conversations on here and we'd love for those conversations to stretch out beyond and, and hear back from, from more people outside of our little social bubble. So the, the further that this spreads, the, the more people we can be exposed to and learn from and, and hear different opinions. So that's what I'm really excited about and, and why I would really ask that, you know, if you're willing to give us a shout out or give us a share, it would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with with that little bit of uh, of that little bit of self advertising over with, we're going to jump into our first segment of the show, which is things we like and things we don't like. Again, we acknowledge that this is a total ripoff of Zach Lowe, and we're okay with that. But we're also open to uh, getting new names for this section. So if you have any suggestions, please send those our way. Riley, there's someone who you are very excited to talk about. I am very excited. Yes, so my playergasm for this week uh, is, is a guy who I became a big fan of with the Warriors having a top two pick in this draft and, and spending basically all of the entire of last year um, looking at draft prospects because they weren't playing in the bubble because um, even before that, the season, you know, was, was lost with Steph breaking his hand, Clay being out with a uh, ACL injury. And so, you know, Warriors, Warriors land of which I consider myself a part, we were very, very focused on the draft. And as I you know, started to become familiar with the players that, that could be selected or that were being discussed, I came across Tyrese Halliburton and I absolutely fell in love with his game. Um, I think I would have, you know, I, I was saying this before the draft, before you know, months before the draft, I was, I was clamoring for the Warriors to draft this guy. He might not have been, you know, a, a consensus top two pick. And I understand that that would have uh, raised some eyebrows had the uh, Warriors selected him, but his play so far with Sacramento is kind of making me feel very validated um, because of, of, you know, all the things that I loved about him, namely his vision, his understanding of the game, his unselfishness, his ability to be very, very efficient. Um, all of those things are, are playing out in Sacramento and he's even flashing some defense, uh, you know, a great steals guy, obviously with his length, um, but he blocked a, a number of shots in a game that I got to watch. Um, earlier this weekend between the Kings and the Pelicans. And I, I just want to have to say that was, that was one of the most fun <clears throat> random NBA games that I've tuned into in a while. Uh, but it was just very cool to see Halliburton playing with a poise of someone who has been in the league for, you know, only a couple, couple of months, but he looks like he's been playing for, for 10 years. And to me, this, this kind of gets to one of my grand theories about basketball and maybe even you know, other sports too is that as much as like potential and, and athleticism and all the measurables and everything else you know is really exciting and it's what we we start to attract to when we're looking at prospects and and projecting them and what they might become the thing that I think I prioritize when you know deciding which players I really think my team should draft and which players I'm going to like is feel and it's it's basketball IQ or however you want to describe it right I just I think that's something that's very, very hard to teach. 
even more than a than a, sh a skill like shooting or um, you know passing or, or defense, which I think is mostly effort, right? I think to me, just the, the ability to see the entire game, to process things at the speed of, of the NBA game was something that just stood out immediately when looking at his college film um, and, and hearing him break down with his game with uh, ESPN expert, Mike Schmitz, you know, it was just, it was, it was really cool. And he seems like a really grounded individual. So I, I've been in love with Tyrese Halliburton as a player since, since before the season. And I'm very, very excited to see him having an immediate impact and helping the Kings win. Yeah, I mean, the Kings have not been doing much of that whole winning thing this year, but we can't fault Halliburton for that. The dude, he plays like a basketball professional. He carries himself like a vet, right? Like a team veteran. And he's for him to be doing that as a rookie, he may not have all-NBA potential. He may not have first-team all-NBA potential, but the guy looks ready to have a career of playing winning basketball, right? Brings to mind someone like maybe a guard, Andre Iguodala, right? Where he's never the totally. superstar, never the guy who is in the driver's seat, but is absolutely essential for team success. I love him too. Kings fans uh, are absolutely lucky to have him. And when they can wash their hands of Buddy Heald, and Marvin Bagley and uh, the stench of the Vlade Divac era, they should be able to put him, De'Aaron Fox, and hopefully some large human from this next draft uh, to create a, a core for the future. Now, someone else who has been showing some major development this season, who I want to talk about as one of the players I like, is... Lugens Dort, right? The wing out there Dort. in Oklahoma City. Now, I think like for many basketball fans, my Lou Dort uh, first experience was in the OKC Houston series last year where he emerged as this rookie who didn't get tons of minutes who could effectively guard James Harden. And James Harden was not having his normal James Harden scoring binges in that playoff round because Dort was able to step up and guard him in a lot of meaningful ways. Now, the question coming into this season was, can he shoot? And the answer last season was largely no. But this year, he is currently hitting, I believe, 43% from three-point right? Many people may cry small sample size, small sample size, but I'm buying because his form this year looks a lot smoother. It looks very repeatable and he's currently shooting 80% from the free throw line. With that repeatable uh, form and that shooting touch from the free throw line are what the experts look at to see if someone is projected to be a good shooter. And I think he's got it. I'm buying. I'm buying what Lou Dort is selling. And I think OKC uh, really walked into a, a wonderful building block to put next to SGA for the future. Yeah, no, I, it, was, it was so much fun to watch him guard Harden. Um, 
better than almost any player I've ever seen. Um, the only one who comes to mind, you know, is Kavon Looney frustrated uh, James Harden by just being actually so groundbound and so slow that he, you know, didn't react to a lot of James Harden's foul bidding. And I think the opposite is a little bit true. You know, Dort is incredibly quick, but so, so strong. And so, you know, watching him get right up in Harden's grill um, without fouling was was truly a masterclass. And like you said, not something I would ever expect from a rookie. Um, it's, I think it's really cool for him, you know, to have a very unorthodox path to the NBA, to be someone who didn't grow up playing basketball and has um, found it sort of late. And so I, there is potential there, just, you know, like in the case of someone, let's say Pascal Siakam, right? Or Joel Embiid even, who, who took up basketball late. There might be potential there for them uh, and Dort to, you know, grow his game and, and develop into the shooter that so far it looks like he is. Yeah. And his defense is not the only defense of anyone uh, catching eyes this year. Someone that I like that I have enjoyed watching has been Miles Turner, where they, I'm so happy that he finally looks comfortable on the court with Domantas Sabonis. And that large of that, a large amount of that has come from Nate Bjorkren opening up the floor a little bit more than Nate McMillan did in the past. So they're able to coexist a lot more offensively. But Miles Turner is currently putting up defensive player of the year numbers on the Indiana back line for a, a good Indiana team, right? That has uh, spent time in and out of the top 10 in defensive efficiency. And having that back line presence to really alter shots at the rim, the highest percentage shots in the league, is so valuable. And I think is leading to a lot of Indiana's success this year. Totally. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I don't want this to be a theme and you can call me on it if I'm saying this too much, but I really liked Miles Turner for quite a lot. When we had a, a draft with our friends, you know, just to try and pick cohesive NBA teams, I picked Miles Turner because I believed in his defensive potential and, and also his, just his potential all across the board. You know, I think he's shown flashes of a really complete offensive game. And obviously when you're playing with a, a player as gifted as Sabonis and, and a more ball dominant guy like Oladipo over the past couple of years, he didn't really get a chance to show that, but I think he can, he can do almost everything um, save for maybe, you know, be a and play initiator on the floor. And so it's cool to see his, what I perceived as always like very good defense, just soar to astronomical levels right now. I think he's blocking over four shots a game. Um, which is, you know, uh, amazing for any of you out there who have drafted him in, in fantasy leagues. Um, uh, yeah, and so I'm, I'm just like you. I'm really, really stoked about his progress. And the Pacers in general have always been a, like an underrated team. I think we've mentioned them before, but, but one that, you know, very professional, very solid. And it's cool to see them potentially reaching more of a ceiling and, and being able to challenge for, you know, maybe one of those home court spots in, in the East. Yeah. Now, all of these guys are, have been fun to watch play basketball this year, but maybe one of the most fun players to watch on the basketball court is Taco Fall. It's not every day you Taco. get to see a seven foot five human being, right? And putting him on a basketball court is an absolute joy, right? And uh, the Celtics have been kind of hit with some. COVID-19 issues recently. Some players have been out 
And that has pushed Fall into a little bit more of a role than Brad Stevens was probably predicting. But he's been killing it. He banked in a three-pointer the other day. He's uh, been showing some offensive chops that could actually be a sign of some of that development from another guy who was late to basketball. And I love watching the Celtics bench absolutely lose their mind every time Taco Fall does something great. And is he maybe starting caliber? Maybe not. But he's another guy like Boban who is so huge. He just changes the game that these players, these NBA players are not used to facing humans this large, right? So Boban is one of those guys who is like the fifth or sixth highest career PER in NBA history, just because of uh, the anomaly that he is. And Taco also has an incredibly high PER uh, in his career. I think it's like 25. When it, while it's an imperfect stat, it's been super cool uh, to see him do some things on the basketball court recently. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, like the enjoyment about those guys, you know, Boban and Taco is, it's a reminder that this is, this is an entertainment product, right? And, you know, as much as we love to dive into the, the nuts and bolts and the minutia, which we'll get into in a second of, you know, winning and, and strategy and whatnot, it's just really cool to see people like that who are very, very skilled and, you know, more coordinated than I think even I am um, and, and see them have fun and see them bring something different to, to the sport. And so I'm, I'm grateful that we get to watch them and that they've actually, you know, found ways to contribute, you know, meaningfully. Yeah. So transitioning a little bit into things we don't like, right? Maybe about an hour before this uh, podcast began being recorded, I sent you a video of Giannis Antetokounmpo, two-time reigning MVP, reigning uh, defensive player of the year. And he was dribbling the ball up the court and the Brooklyn Nets were not even past the free throw line. So he pulled up from three and airballed horribly. What are your thoughts on this video, Riley? Yeah, wow. Um... You know, Giannis is is a, probably my favorite or second favorite player in the league. You know, I I, I really really enjoy the the different things that he's able to do and the the passion and earnestness you know with which he plays the game. Um, and so I feel my first feeling is just like sad for the guy because he he tries and he's worked on this a ton and it's it's a bummer to see it not paying off for him. Um, there's been some really interesting discussion and it's changed my mind a little bit. You know. There was the the drumbeat for so long. It's like, you know, he's got to become a shooter. He's got to become a three-point shooter. He's got to be able to, you know, make people guard him out out in the paint. Or, sorry, out uh, on the three-point line, out in the perimeter. Um, and then, you know, as as his shot has gotten better, you know, it's like approached 33% and kind of the break-even point where you would rather having – excuse me, you would rather have, uh, you know, a three-pointer than a two-pointer. Um, it still, it, it still hasn't really changed the way that anyone's defending him. And, and so as a response, I think the, the common narrative has kind of shifted, you know, it's like, it's probably more important for him to get good at shooting free throws and for him to develop some more counters like a fadeaway um, or a floater or something in the lane, you know, when they, when they go to build that wall with the, the, 
guy at the the nail and two people, um, you know, at the corners of the lane to really, you know, prevent him from driving. Um, I still think like he can be an amazing player without any of this, because obviously we've seen it the last two years. I think it ends up becoming more about what we talked about in our very first episode. You know, can the Bucks be contenders if Giannis can at least shoot, not from three-point range, but from outside. And I think he has that capability in him. Um, I just I just hope that this isn't, uh, you know, a case of the yips or something that that mentally is going to get worse and worse because that's the way it's been trending, which is is really a bummer. So I, I don't know where I end up on it. Yeah, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think he needs a three-point shot, you know, to take the Bucks to where they've talked about going for the last couple of years? Or, or is it more just about his other elements to his game? Yeah, you made a great point about like regular season versus playoffs because tonight in the game where he airballed that three, he still scored 34 points, right? The Bucks yep, lost yep, by two exactly. points and he still scored 34. He was his team's leading scorer, one of the leading scorers of the game. Now, in the playoffs, we've seen time and time again, as things slow down, you need to be able to create shots for yourself that aren't in transition and that aren't driving into the lane. It's what makes Ben Simmons largely useless in the last few minutes of the fourth quarter when the game slows down because he doesn't have that extra thing. I don't know if Giannis has an extra thing yet. We need to see him do it for four straight playoff rounds before we can think that he has it or he doesn't have it. But I don't really like, I don't think there's any excuse for an NBA player who gets paid millions of dollars to airball a wide open three. I'll never say they need to make it every time, right? Shooting percentages exist, but you got to hit something. You can't be that far off. And so that it makes me sad as well. And also frustrated at like, this guy has maddening superstar capabilities, but is missing this one thing. All right. We are really quickly going to go through some of these last few things we don't like. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic uh, had another injury that knocks him out for the entirety of the regular season, which hurts because he's a fun player, man, and he makes the Blazers a more competitive team, a more fun team. And giving him a, a year to work back, a full season to work back from that devastating leg injury of his really could have got him to a place to allow uh, the Blazers to be a dangerous team in the West. And it, it just sucks to see that opportunity taken away from him again. Uh, another thing that I don't like that I haven't liked this year has been the Pelicans, man. The Pelicans looked good in some of their first few games. I think they were started off three and two or three and three, but things have just gotten worse and worse without much getting better. Zion Williamson is maybe my favorite player to watch play basketball in the NBA. He is an absolute delight on the court, but their defense is just kind of sagging. They're not very crisp on rotations. A lot of young guys missing a lot of things. Uh, Eric Bledsoe and Lonzo Ball are essentially the same player and neither of them is fit to run that offense. Neither of them has the, has the playmaking chops or the uh, offensive gravity to make things easier for Brandon Ingram or Zion. And 
their half court offense late in games is just all right, Brandon Ingram ISO. And he's good enough to make it largely work, but he's not that good to make it a closing specialty. He's no Kobe Bryant, right? He's no guy who's hmm. going to take over hmm. these last few minutes of fourths. Yeah, so that's, it's that's sad for me to watch the Pelicans because JJ Redick just climbed above 30% three point shooting. There's no floor spacing. And I want to see Zion fly, man. And it's not happening as much as I'd like to maybe see. Yeah, it was it was super interesting for me to watch them versus the Kings and that game that I previously mentioned, you know, because like you said, Zion is just unreal on offense. Um, I think part of the issue is that like he right now is just a one-way player. You know, I'm not seeing him have the awareness and and the hustle and the, just the, the high ribbing motor that we saw when he was in college. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously like superstars get a little bit more leeway not to play defense um, as hard, but that's what, that's what takes teams over the top is when you have a two-way star. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think JJ Reddick's shooting percentage is uh, – three-point percentage is always going to stabilize, right? And so there was a ton of, you know, really creative and really good actions between him and Zion that I saw in the game. And so I think there's potential there. Um, but I, I think you're right. You know, Lonzo and and Bledsoe, you just cannot have um, – you cannot have both of them um, because as much as I, I appreciate their games and I think, you know, that those are underrepresented, you know, archetypes in the league, you know, hard – hard-nosed defense, long guys who will do a little bit of everything. It just shows how much shooting matters in this league. And so I hope that the Pelicans figure it out. Um, I'm, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what they end up doing. I have confidence in Stan Van Gundy. Um, I, you know, I think he's a really, really knowledgeable guy and a great coach. Um, and he clearly had a good plan going in, but we'll see if, if, you know, the, the structural limitations of their roster and, and not having, you know, maybe someone who's a top 10, top 15 player until Zion can, you know, reach his ultimate form, if that holds them back going forwards. The Pelicans are a few pieces away from the contention that many hoped for them at the beginning of this year. And on the path they're on, they might have a lottery pick to help uh, bolster their chances for the future. Now, Riley... Take us into the minutia minute. What do you have for us today? Sure, sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna set my own timer this time, so I know exactly, you know, uh, how much how long I have and, and how long I can go. So, for this week's minutia minute with 60 seconds on the clock, the first thing I want to talk about is this new trend of referees uh, directly addressing the television audience to explain and announce the calls that they have made. This is usually post review, uh, video review. Um, but it, I think it's a, just a really neat addition. Uh, I particularly like the flair with which Bill Kennedy did so in, in a recent game. Um, the one thing I've observed is that the television producers, you know, the, the refs have a button that they can push to like trigger this direct feed and allow them to speak right into the camera. But a lot of the time producers aren't ready. So it's a very awkward cut to when this happens. Um, and so I, I don't know, I just, I think it's good, you know, it works in football. It's a, it's a, kind of a tradition in that sport and so it's cool to see it uh take its way over to the nba and i believe that is all the time that i have for minutia this week so we'll have to save some other things for later 
I love it. All right. Uh, so Riley, tonight this show is interrupting uh, your Warriors-Lakers game tonight, but you may be thanking me for taking away from that TV screen. That game was not going the way the Warriors would have wanted it to go. Now, I mean, I, 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 may be, I may be watching that as we record the podcast, and they're only down six in the fourth quarter, so it's not as bad as it was, you know, was once in, in the first half. They've brought it back. Great for them. Yes, uh, yes. The other sort of marquee game of the night, though, the Warriors look, and Lakers look like they're making it a marquee game. The other marquee game was the Brooklyn Nets against the Milwaukee Bucks. And this was the second game of the James Harden experience in Brooklyn. We still have no Kyrie on the team yet, but the early Harden returns are promising. The dude is still one of the premier offensive talents in the league. And he seems to be engaged in a little bit more of a wide variety of offensive tactics besides his Houston ISO ball. So the early Harden returns are positive. Now, there is plenty of time for us to be able to better evaluate this trade over the course of this year and the next few years after this. We broke down I, all the get, reasons why in our podcast last week that this could go either well or it could go poorly. But can I say one question, can I say one thing before yeah. we move on? Yeah, no, I I just uh you know it's been cool to see James Harden look slimmer. Um, you know, always like it when people get in better shape. But I I am gonna reserve judgment for a while because I think this is a honeymoon period and you know, Harden having seven shot attempts and seven assists at the like half in his first game, I think is unusual. And my prediction, this is a hot take, my prediction is the honeymoon period will come to an end sooner rather than later. And you know, who knows what that means, but uh, I'll be curious when we get down to, to brass tacks, what ends up happening there. Sorry, that was, that was a little. No, I love it. I love the hot take. And uh, you're right. We, we have plenty of time to evaluate this. We will be here to evaluate this as we go along. But a question that we found ourselves asking each other after we recorded the Harden podcast was, should NBA teams be doing what Brooklyn did? Should these trades be made where they are absolutely mortgaging their future in an attempt to win now, right? So we're going to have that conversation right now. We're going to ask ourselves the question, should teams make the massive trades of all of their picks and pick swaps that they can for superstars? Uh, as sort of an introduction, I want to sort of give you, Riley, a history of superstar trades throughout the league history and how we got here. Is that okay? Please, by all means, teach, get your, get your teacher on. All right, we're here. Now, superstar trades is not unique to the past few years. Superstars have always been traded for a plethora of reasons in NBA history. The first uh, major trades, Wilt, got traded a few times and he actually brought Philadelphia a championship in uh, the 1960s. 
Uh, Kareem was traded from the Bucks to the Lakers for a handful of players important to the Bucks, but resulted in Milwaukee being somewhat of an insignificant franchise for many decades following. Moses Malone was traded by the Rockets after winning MVP. He was traded for next to nothing in one of the worst trades in NBA history from some really cheap owners. Uh, But as we start to get into the 90s and 2000s, we start to see some of these big superstar trades develop where a big impressive haul comes forward. So Chris Webber, after one season and one blood feud with the Warriors and their coach Don Nelson, he was traded to the Washington Bullets in exchange for three first round picks and Tom Gugliotta, right? Shaq was famously traded to the Heat for a few players and one first round pick. The Mellow trade in 2010, uh, where he was sent from Denver to the Knicks was an exchange for much of the Knicks rotation at the time. Wilson Chandler, Danilo Gallinari, Ray Felton, Timothy Mozgov, but also one first and one pick swap a little bit down the line. The first James Harden trade brought back two firsts among a handful of players that kind of phased out at OKC pretty quickly. And the Magic traded Dwight to the Lakers in a multi-team deal that brought back a plethora of players to the Magic and only one protected and one unprotected first-round pick. So we start to see more first-round picks be introduced into these trades in the uh, 90s and early 2000s. Now, the trend here is typically, uh, if you're trading for a superstar, it goes from you trade a superstar for a few players to either a lot of players and a few picks or a few picks and one impact player, okay? So we see this trend beginning to grow over these few decades. Now, in 2013, a trade came around that changed the landscape of superstar trading forever. And this was the ill-fated Brooklyn Nets-Boston Celtics trade, where the Celtics gave up Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Jason Terry, And the Nets gave up a bunch of rotation, uh, bottom of the rotation players. But they also, more famously, gave up first round picks unprotected in 2014, 2016, and 2018. Now we all know the story there. The story is the Nets experiment did not work. KG and Paul Pierce were washed and the Celtics ended up being competitive with top of the lottery first round picks in the latter half of the last decade, right? A trade that went infamously wrong for the Brooklyn Nets. But the last few years have seen these trades sort of take steroids and inject it straight into their heart, right? In the Anthony Davis trade, the Lakers traded their young core three first round picks and three pick swaps for Anthony Davis. 
end of trade, right? Then that same year, Paul, the Oklahoma City Thunder traded Paul George to the Clippers in exchange for young stud Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, three Clippers first-round picks, two Miami first-round picks, and two uh, pick swaps between OKC and the Clippers in 2023 and 2025. And then, as we talked about in detail last week, the Nets did it all again. They got James Harden from the Houston Rockets in exchange for half of their rotation and three first-round picks and three pick swaps. All of the first-round picks that we that the Nets were able to give up over the next several years. Now, Riley. Yes. We're asking ourselves the question after that little history lesson. Should teams make the massive trades of all of their future picks for superstars? We've got a situation where it dramatically did not work for the Brooklyn Nets. We've got a situation for the Lakers where it immediately brought them a championship. And we have two stories yet to be written by the Los Angeles Clippers and the Brooklyn Nets. What do you think? What are your first sure, thoughts? Sure, sure, sure. I've, I've got a couple thoughts right off the bat. Um, the first being that I think we have to accept this truism, right? It is impossible unless you are the 2004 Pistons and maybe the 2019 Raptors, but that was very you know injury dependent. It is impossible to win an NBA title without one of the top five or, you know, top six, whatever, the difference-making players, the super, super duper stars in this league. It just doesn't really happen. Now, I, th- Unless- I think I think that Kawhi showed that he was one of those top five impact oh, players I'm sorry. in 2019. I I'll give you the Pistons easy, but I'll push yes. back. Kawhi, Kawhi was, is a top five player in the league. No, and showed you, are, it in you are totally right, and that is my oversight. Uh, please excuse me if there are any Raptors fans out there. Did not mean to disrespect the claw as much as I have certain opinions about him. Um, yes, but so back to that that point. To me, I think it's important to acknowledge that you know it's impossible to get to the championship winning level without at least one of those players on your team. Sometimes, if you know, maybe even more. Um, and so, with that in mind, I, I tend to think that you know if you don't have one of those players on on your team and you have the opportunity to get one that is like a prerequisite for competing for a championship it's not going to mean you're going to to win but i think it's it's impossible basically to do it without and so from that one perspective like if you if you have aspirations of winning a title anytime soon and you think you have a shot i think sometimes it makes sense the question for me and and i i got a little blowback um for this take from from last week's James Harden pod and and I, I understand why um the, the other side of the coin though is you know like building building um an organic situation has has also proven to be much more successful than trying to do the Thanos thing and acquire you know players um uh just you know through free free agency and whatnot um you know the Lakers 
would appear to be an exception to that. But I would argue that by at least developing a, a core of players who might not have been super valued around the league, but at least had at you know very level uh, at the very minimum NBA le- uh, rotation uh, levels of production in Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Julius Randle, you know all of these guys, right? They built you know an environment that LeBron was willing to come to, and then they had enough assets to go get AD. And so I think the question for me is, you know, it's kind of a cop out to say it depends, but I think it really depends on where you are in your cycle, right? If you've if you've built organically, if you have an organically, you know, self drafted superstar that you're able to to control for a long time and and you know have around the culture, I think that's an important prerequisite too. So I'm not sure that I would advocate for you know a team that that doesn't have that base level of competency and base level of potential to go and trade their entire future. But I think if you've, you've done, you know, your homework, you've, you've done the hard work of, of going from bottom feeder to, to respectable, then it might make sense for you to swing um, for everything and, and try and go get a superstar. Okay. So I want you to I want you to build on, on that last point a little bit more. Walk me through the criteria that you think uh, is the line. What is the line on which you'd say, well, on this side you absolutely have to make that trade, and on the other side might not be worth the risk. What's that line for you? Sure. Um, yeah, the risk. That's really that's really what this always comes down to, right? That's what we're we're talking. And I I can blather on about. Um, the past, but it's it's really it's about risk tolerance, right? And I guess that's where you have to ask yourself as a franchise: Does it make, you know, is is the the possibility of a title, or is the even you know more certainty of trying to win a title worth the possibility that you could be the Nets, that you could have have nothing um, going for a number of years? And so, I personally. Um, I tend to value, I think, being a competent team and being an enjoyable team to watch and being a team that, you know, might not have title aspirations or might not win a title for a year, but is consistently good more than most people. You know, there's this kind of belief around the league that if you're not competing for titles, you need to bottom out. You need to go all the way bottom. And I, I tend to push back and think that there is some value in, in maintaining the middle line. And so I guess it's that's the real question for teams, right? Is it is how much do you value competency and, and being able to sell fans on a, a decent product versus the shot at one single title? And I'm I'm not sure where I come down on that permanently. What what about you? What's your what's your what's your answer to that math question? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right in saying that it, it's it's a tricky tricky thing for the suit for these teams to decide. And something that you said that really resonated with me is. Is that risk of being the Brooklyn Nets for most of last decade, is that risk worth it for the possibility of a championship, right? And it, uh, winning a championship is such a rare occurrence. One thirtieth of the teams in an NBA season will win the championship, right? And so for me, collecting those stars and putting yourself in the best possible chance 
to uh, win that championship, that is what all of these teams are supposed to do, right? And so uh, let's say if I'm the Brooklyn Nets looking at this trade, and if I'm Sean Marks, I say, you know what? We've got a pretty good team this year. Kyrie's pretty good. Kyrie and Kevin Durant are very good. And then we've got a deep team, right? This team is good, but we're not sure yet if it can beat the Bucks or the Celtics in seven games. We're not sure. And we re- we're really not sure if they can beat the Lakers. Because that's what it's really going to come down to is teams are angling for the Lakers, right? Adding James Harden to that team raises the ceiling exponentially, right? And so if I'm these NBA teams, I got to go for it, right? I've got to go for it because winning an NBA championship, if you'll ask guys like uh, Knicks fans who haven't won one since 1973, despite uh, being one of the most popular franchises in the NBA, not winning that title hurts, it hurts. And so if you're Sean Marks and you don't make that trade, do you look back and then you have a competitive few years, but never get over that hump? You're going to look back and you're going to say, if we had traded for James Harden, one of the top five players in the NBA, this may not have happened because we now have two to three years to figure out whether Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving can all catch fire for four straight rounds and beat teams in their way. And I think they absolutely can. They sure, sure. 100% can, right? Kevin Durant, last time he was healthy, beat LeBron James, outplayed LeBron James in two consecutive finals, right? These Lakers are better than those Cavs were, but he's, he's looking like he's still Kevin Durant and he's got some firepower around him. I, I think... When you to add these superstars to add that potential, you can't say no. You're almost held hostage by the potential. You can't say no. Sure, sure. That's a really fascinating way to look at it, and I, I, I you know, I buy that a lot. Um, there were two things that came up to me as I was, you know, listening to your your last answer, and the first one for me being that the NBA is actually, you know, we talked about this a little bit last time. It, it's a business, and this is most noticeable for small market teams. And I, I was just thinking about all the, the history that you listed off and how many of the times did we see a, um, a small market go out and, and try and push everything, all their chips into the middle of the table and go and try and get a superstar. It not, not very often, you know, the, the trend has really been that these are big market teams who have a chance that competing going all in. And so I, I think I was just struck by the, the notion that the calculus is very different depending on your market size, right? A lot of these teams um, really have to stay relevant, like the Memphis Grizzlies, you know, in a very tiny market, not a huge basketball town as much as, you know, they have a very loyal fan base. You know, I, I wouldn't say that there's a ton of uh, potential for that, you know, to grow or for that to become like a super profitable industry. And so and maybe this is owners just crying poor when they're they're really you know billionaires and, and whatnot. But I, I do think there's some consideration that has to be said that it's hard for for teams to when they're smaller, you know, when they don't have the glitz, the glamour, the reputation 
of of you know the entertaining night out to to attract fans when they're bad they have to really consider you know is is it worth it for us to bottom out if we bottom out will we lose the whatever interest we've built up you know about being a competent team over time um and so i thought that was an interesting point yeah and we go back through that little history of superstar trades that i mentioned earlier kareem was traded from milwaukee to los angeles right Mello, Carmelo Anthony was traded from Denver to New York, right? James Harden round one went from Oklahoma City to Houston. And he even upgraded second time around from Houston to New York again, right? So exactly like you're saying, these are small market teams giving up a... these superstars and big market teams absorbing them. And I, I think, um, so maybe that's, you know, we have to divide this question, right? It's like, does it make sense for a big market team to do this? More than often than not, yes, yes, you're right. I think, yes, it does. But for smaller market teams who, you know, draft picks are their lifeblood because they can't uh, rely on, on getting superstars to come to Oklahoma City to to come to Memphis, to, to come to Minnesota, you know, they, they have to be, they have to have a different uh, valuation on, on their assets and whatnot. Uh, so another interesting point that I meant to bring up um, in the previous segment was this, this idea that NBA teams are realizing that draft picks aren't as valuable as we once thought, you know, um, maybe this is because data science and, and uh, analytics have really, kind of led teams to to level the playing field in terms of you know scouting you know there's there's much less of an advantage now and everyone's kind of working with pretty much the same uh, general assumptions but also it's it's the realization that like if you don't have a top three pick your hit rate on a superstar is going to be pretty low and even your hit on like a an impact player is going to be low and so i think for for the teams that send these picks out we're, we're realizing that, yeah, if they end up being bad in, in that nest case, um, then it looks like a really huge mistake. But for the Clippers or the Lakers um, who have just, you know, shipped out potentially their future, and it remains to be seen how competitive they will be um, in, in the future when, when LeBron and Kawhi and Paul George are no longer there. It, it's not as hurtful, you know, uh, of a trade for them because, they're realizing that they can still find a Giannis Antetokounmpo with a 15th pick or a Nikola Jokic with a 47th pick, right? There's, there's depth um, out there to be had. And, and if, if it's not a first, first overall pick anyway, you know, it's not, it's not a huge loss. So on top of that, another thing is it's, and this opinion is coming to us from Vance Gregg, follow him on Twitter at, Vance Greg, that is Greg with two G's at the end, one of our good buddies and uh, someone we share a lot of our basketball passions with. Uh, Vance sent us a message on Twitter uh, reminding us that it's good to consider that all draft picks are not the same, right? And that any pick outside of the top 10 is kind of useless, right? In certain situations. And you you hope for a role player at best beyond like that uh, Nikola Jokic or Giannis late 
pick, right? So if you're a championship level team, if you want to be a championship level team, you can't just fill out your team with a bunch of young players and hope it goes well, right? The Warriors developed Clay, Steph, and Draymond, but they had David Lee, Iguodala, Bogut, guys to shepherd that in. So winning a championship is hard, and doing that requires a lot more than just the multitude of draft picks. Yeah, so I, I think a great thing that Vance points out too is, is this idea that when you empty the cupboards to, to get a star player, that doesn't mean it's only going to be that star because, you know, free agent, uh, you know, veteran free agents might come and chase a ring or you might get buyout guys, which I have to say is something that I still do not understand about the NBA. I, I don't find that that, uh, you know, mechanism for adding players happens in any other league that I am aware of. Um, and so I, I, I still, you know, as someone who came to basketball late, still don't really, you know, know why that's a, uh, a tradition or a precedent, but, it, you know, it's certainly a viable way for you to get, you know, competent role players that are going to, going to help you win that title. So I, I think, you know, Vance reminds us that, you know, just because you're mortgaging your future and even like trading half your rotation, that doesn't mean you're not going to be able to replace those players. And that I think almost might exacerbate the the problem. If you see this as a problem, right. Is, is the ability for these teams, you know, not to have to, to, to scrap everything bare and, and the ability for them to count on, on competent guys to come in and bolster the stars and, you know, scrub sort of approach. And another thing that was sent to us uh, by our good buddy Vance is that for those championship-deprived teams out there, teams that have not won a ring in decades or maybe even their entire existence, winning a championship is really hard. So his, his take was, as a Sacramento Kings fan, if you mortgage your future and you end up winning one championship and then are bad for 10 years, it's still worth it, right? And you as a Warriors fan, me as someone who's kind of unattached to any specific team, we should take it from this Kings fan, someone who would happily trade a decade of ineptitude for a championship banner. This, this is the opinion of these teams. These teams are in the business to win championships. So if you have that opportunity to add that player win that championship, even if it ends up with a few years of total ineptitude, it is still worth it. And I, I think as we're having this conversation, I didn't really know where this conversation was going to go when we first started it. And uh, I especially was uh, unsure what side I was going to fall on. But it, I think it's becoming clearer to me that uh, – it is worth it for the big markets to make this trade because the thing that really stuck into my brain is that for you said these small market teams draft capital is everything, right? Because the only way a small market team is going to win an NBA championship is by hitting like catching lightning in a bottle, right? We think back to the last 20 years who've won the majority of the championships, right? The Los Angeles Lakers, the Miami Heat have a few. The Golden State Warriors from the Bay Area have a few, right? And for small market teams, they need that draft capital, right? 
the only real small market team to win a championship this decade, the, the last two decades, has been San Antonio, right? The Spurs. And, and they're, they're for sure a, a separate case, right? We have to treat them, I think, you know, as, but I mean, they are a small market, but, you know, having Pop and R.C. Buford kind of makes them a little bit of an outlier even, right? So you almost have to throw that example away and say, who, who else, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll push back on that a little bit because Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford, great at what they do. Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford don't guarantee, as we've seen these last few years, do not guarantee playoff runs and championships. You know who guarantees playoff runs and championships? Tim Duncan. Yeah. Tony yeah, Parker. Right. Manu right. Ginobili. Right. These guys that were absolute home runs hit by the Spurs at different points of the draft, right? Parker and Ginobili were drafted even as the team was competing for championships. So it's almost like these small market teams are held hostage by the fact that they're small market teams, right? And the Lakers proved that you can be in the biggest market with one of the biggest teams and be an absolute dumpster fire for a few years. And then you sign LeBron James and you're at a championship within two years. Sure. Right? I, 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 we're, we haven't seen that out of New York yet because James Dolan is a special kind of toxic, but Pat Riley in Miami and uh, the Lakers out here the, with the Bust family are proving to us that by being a big market team, even the Brooklyn Nets, right? Getting KD and Kyrie, being a big market team is the quickest way to success. And you can throw these draft picks away and still have a path towards competition. Totally. This is, this is starting to sound like we are drifting into big market, small market territory, which is something that I'm maybe more passionate about than anything regarding the NBA. And so I, I think we should table, you know, that kind of part of this discussion for another day, because I have two hours worth of thoughts about, about that topic. Um, So maybe I I agree almost entirely with everything you're saying, um, but I I wanted to talk about to this this notion of you know trading everything from your future right. We've seen you know uh, especially Sam Presti just push the envelope in terms of exactly what he's allowed to do and. Um, Oh, also, uh, you know, by by demanding pick swaps, by demanding um, you know other assets that that teams have, and it, it it makes me think about the the Stepien rule, right? Which is this idea that you're not allowed to trade consecutive first round picks after a certain number of years to protect dumb franchises from you know from from making bad trades and ending up with bad decisions. And so this is a, a question that we wanted to talk about, right, Norman? Which was is is the, the the prominence of these trades is the fact that they keep happening is that good for the health of the league and should should the league you know take their hands off and let gms you know wheel and deal and, and trade picks as far out in the future as they they want um a currently the limit is seven years into the future that you're allowed to train first or or should there be even more control right should we should be lower i guess artificially the price of superstars by limiting exactly what can be demanded. Where do you fall on that dynamic as it currently stands? 
Well, we're following straight back into our, our conversation of last week of a, a deep critique of capitalism and its uh, pitfalls and, and benefits because uh, it, it comes to the conversation of like, it compares very easily to government regulation, right? And uh, the two arguments that exist out there today is that more government regulation leads to either, some people will say it leads to growth some people will say it leads to uh, some people say it leads to stagnation, and some people are the opposite. Get rid of all limits, and things will skyrocket, right? But other people say when things skyrocket, a few teams benefit, a few people benefit, and the rest suffer. So when I look at that in terms of the NBA, right, in terms of whether there should be more of these regulations in or less of these regulations in. I think before you can answer that question, you have to ask yourself, what do you want out of the NBA? Right? What do people want out of the NBA? Because if people want the old version, right, which is a decade of, or two decades in the 80s and 90s where superstars stayed, and you had long stories that go over time, you know? LeBron's gonna do his version of the last dance someday, but it's not going to be as captivating of a story because Jordan's is one story from beginning to end, team and fran player and franchise, you know, and those trials and tribulations they go up against, against the Bird Celtics, against the Bad Boy Pistons, and then vanquishing all those in their way, including the Utah Jazz later on in that. So do you want that sort of NBA? Then you got to put the regulations on it. Do you want the more modern NBA, the one where these things are happening, where superstars have the control of things? Then get rid of the regulations. Let the teams and players do as they please. Now, I know that that was a long non-answer, did anything I say trigger trigger something in your mind that you want to speak to? Yeah, I I think it's a fascinating idea of like framing this as regulation and capitalism. Um, I, to me, the, the point that I made previously, right, is that the the fewer things that teams are allowed to trade, I, I think that artificially lowers the value of of superstars in terms of of trades because I I personally believe that we've kind of crossed the the Rubicon in terms of stars asking out and having the power to demand out, you know, James Harden had not just one year, two years left on his contract. And by, you know, appearing to be out of shape, I'm, I'm still not sure I, my, my uh, conspiracy tinfoil hat is on about uh, the images of his weight in that game versus the Lakers uh, and then how slim he looked when he, he suited up for the Brooklyn Nets for the first time. Um, but if, if, you know, as his, him disregarding COVID protocols and, you know, just being a malcontent and disrespectful to his fellow players. If, if that has been proven to work, which I would say, you know, it's almost inarguable, right? Like if somebody wants to get traded, I have not found the general manager who's going to tell them no, you know, even Kawhi, right? Like that situation, the Spurs held off as long as they possibly could, but Kawhi was able to make it so toxic for them that they felt like they had no choice but to dump him for basically spare parts as, as much as I really liked. Um, oh, who's, who's the guy that they got the, you know, 
pretty athletic big man. Jakob Pertl? Jakob Pertl. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, Jakob Pertl is not – Jakob Pertl and, and whatever else they got is DeMar not – DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan. Thank you, right? I'm, I'm, yeah, that's not the return that you should be getting for a guy like Kawhi. Um, you know, there was weird injury around injury noise around that situation, but I, so my, where I might come down on it is that, you know, I think the stars are going to keep this pattern up. It's just going to keep happening. And so maybe by, by, you know, limiting how much teams can trade that again, that, that makes it so that you can all, you know, they only cost three first round picks or something, you know? And so. And maybe it gets to the point that you're talking about earlier, right? We have this balance of players and picks, and, and that's how teams are trying to to kind of meet in the middle, right? Um, and that's what we saw with the the Ben Simmons opportunity. You know, the, the team valued picks more than they valued Ben Simmons and Tyrese Maxey and whatnot. So all, all of that is to say, I guess I find myself uh, erring on the side of let them let them do whatever they want, right? Like you know, trade trade all of the future away. Um, and see exactly where that where that ends up, um, because yeah, it it might suck for the health of the league to have premier markets like the the Nets or or the Lakers if the trade backfires, right? If it if it bites them in the ass, um, for them to be really bad and kind of irrelevant and not generating interest. Um, but I I tend to think this is here to stay, so you might as well let those small markets extract as much possible value as they can. I just see how many picks we can go. Is it 10 picks that, that teams finally stop saying, okay, I'm going to do this deal? Is it is it the entire roster plus 10 picks that they they, they finally tap out? I, I don't know, but I'm almost curious to see, you know, what the limit is. Totally. I've got two things to say. The first one yeah. is I'm coming down with an opinion. All right? I don't like it. I don't like these big traits. Okay. I don't like these super like I, the way I enjoy sports. I don't like these superstars, like absolutely going through their franchises like a wrecking ball, right? And uh, I and uh, leaving behind carnage, right? Kind of then a toxic situation like Kawhi did, and like the Spurs bounced back from that in a certain way, or like Harden did. And we'll see how the Rockets respond in that sort of way. But the superstar getting what they want, good. I'm glad. But I don't like, I'm, as a person, I don't like gambling. And in these massive deals, the two sides are gambling. One side is gambling and saying, we are getting a championship or we will be the laughing stock of the NBA. And the other team is saying, I now have a bunch of chances to hit on a first round pick, but picking a, a superstar in the draft is as big of a shit show as it could possibly get. We mentioned last week in the Harden pod, Markel Fultz was the unanimous first round pick and Jason Tatum is now an all NBA talent. And Markel Fultz has never been healthy for a full season or effective in the time that he's playing. Right? So I don't like that these small market teams are forced to say, okay, I'm Sam Presti. I now have a million picks, right? If the Clippers are good for a few more years and Miami is good for a few more years, those picks become not lottery picks. And I don't like that. That doesn't seem 
worth it to me. I, I don't li like that gamble. It could turn into a transcendent superstar, but there aren't that many transcendent superstars. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Before, before you get uh, to your next point, um, I, I, this to me, it, it comes down to the, the health of the league, right? And not in terms of competition or, or parity or anything, but, but in terms of marketability and in terms of what the NBA as an organization decides they want to sell. And right now they are deciding that they are fully content on selling tweets, right? They, they are, they are or, or speculation or story or the potential of who could go where. Um, and a, a deep segment of the my Twitter timeline has kind of come around to the point that that's not ultimately great for the NBA as a product. You know, they're still putting on really, really entertaining basketball. But the, when when the biggest, you know, day of engagement for you in the entire year is not game seven of the NBA finals. It's the opening of free agency and everyone is on Twitter looking at Woj and Shams, you know, timelines and getting notifications went on and losing their mind and, and, and speculating, oh, where could Giannis go? Where could Giannis go? And as soon as he has decided to sign in Milwaukee, we forget about the Bucks entirely. We forget about Giannis to the same degree that when we were able to speculate that he could be end up in Miami or he could end up in Golden State or whatever, right? And so I think it becomes a question of right now, Adam Silver, it seems, you know, is, is totally fine with this dynamic and he wants to encourage player uh, empowerment but I, I sort of question, you know, is that healthy for the league? Because you can't monetize tweets at the, at the moment, right? Like people aren't going to pay to find out where someone's going because they'll just, they'll just see them on their next team. And so I think I worry that it's, it's driving, you know, a sugar rush, a sugar high. It's, it's driving people to, to, you know, reach for the fool's gold instead of actually going and watching the game and becoming invested in, in, in the, the elements that I think make it beautiful and, and the, the strategy and the, the whole, you know, ecosystem that's around the league. And so I, I worry for the, the league's, you know, next TV contract. I worry for their viability going forwards. The NFL, I think, has, has managed to find a really good balance in terms of, yes, we care about the noise and the drama and where people are going to go in the transactions and the excitement of picks and everything. But at the same time, you know, the games are still tantamount, right? It's it's why we tune in. It's why we care. Winning still matters more than who's going to trade for who. And so I, I, I'm, you know, I, I feel a little bit gross about where everything's going. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Please return to the the second point that you wanted to make, unless you have a rebuttal. I am so glad that you interrupted me there because that is a thought process that I feel like I had been thinking about subconsciously but had never been able to put into actual words, actual concrete thought. And you just did it for me. You crystallized that, right? To where like the NBA is somewhat catering currently, this current uh, contract or whatever is catering to NBA Twitter. The world of takes, the world of uh, gifts, the world of uh, the guy who's hunkered down in a bunker right? Who's constantly texting teams and putting out tweets, right? You watch the Shams bunker that he puts out on the day of free agency. He sits in a dark windowless room for hours. That is his day. And we have turned over our, uh, our real metal as fans where we, where we choose to care. We've turned that over to the guys 
sitting in dark rooms all day, putting out tweets instead of the on court product, right? Which like, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. It, if it turns into a bit of a soap opera, then, then and that really hurts, that could really hurt the NBA popularity moving forward. Because the fans out there who do care about the product now are forced to be bombarded with the James Harden trade, the Anthony Davis trade, all these things that begin taking away from the parody of 30 teams competing for a championship. And instead it's five or six dudes competing for a championship. And that's a harder product to follow. That is, totally, that yeah. is really a harder product to follow. I, and I, I think it, it's, I don't necessarily blame, you know, the league office or, or the, the media for not understanding Twitter is not reality um, because I struggle with this constantly, right? You know, realizing that one, like the, the sports takes that I hear on there don't actually represent, you know, fans. A lot of the most passionate people on there care so much they're willing to make an account and and to say what they want right and, and to, to argue and get into all these arguments and that doesn't represent the general the general american or international person right who who's going to be invested in basketball those people out there still do care about winning and, and the quality of the product so i i don't blame the league office because it, that's a hard lesson um but i i think it it comes down to this idea that engagement is always a good thing. And, you know, being the talk of the town is always a good thing. Um, and I just, I don't know if that's, if that's true because, you know, the NBA dominates online discussion as far as I'm aware, right. NBA Reddit is much more popular, I think relative, you know, to the amount of fans that the NBA has compared to NFL Reddit or, or hockey or whatever, right. Like they've figured out to how to make a product that is great for online discussion, but, like you said, that's that's not why we should all be here. Uh, I, I personally think that it should be the basketball and the competition and, and the skill level and the the talent of these guys who do amazing things. And 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 so I think maybe it comes down to how can you sell the games and the story of the games better than you're selling free agent drama? Because right now the league's media partners have gotten really good at selling free agent drama, but I don't know if they still know how to tell the story of of a basketball game or a basketball series or basketball career without, you know, delving into the the worst elements of Twitter and the hot takery and whatnot. Yeah. And like, yeah, these, these are all, all really great points. And I've had the thought multiple times of I, because I'm not active on Twitter, I am missing out on the NBA. I'm missing out on NBA talk and NBA discourse, right? Because so much of being an NBA fan for a lot of hardcore NBA fans today is NBA Twitter and all of the things that it offers. The Woj and Sham bombs, right? The guys like Kevin O'Connor or Steve Jones Jr. who like to post about the basketball and break things down. And also the Twitter rabbit holes you go down. When, what if we started putting a lot more of that traffic into articles on The Ringer or articles on The Athletic? Or God forbid, bring back real sports analysis to ESPN that's not behind a fucking firewall, you know? And make that the conversations about team fit, the conversations about on-court product, player development, make that the story instead of the drama. And the, 
the la the last sort of thing that I think to try to tr kind of wrap this conversation into a bow because uh, we don't know what the long-term ramifications of the Anthony Davis, Paul George, and now James Harden 2.0 trade will be, right? We, we don't, if all three, the Lakers have won a championship, if the Clippers win a championship or two and the Nets win a championship or two, then this becomes the way you win championships in the NBA, which in 10 years from now, we'll be having this conversation and we'll be like, you know what? Like, maybe if we trade off all of our like usable players in a Sam Hinkie type process for these first round picks and then trade 15 first round picks, we'll be able to land a transcendent superstar. Or in 10 years, we'll be looking back, we'll be like, wow, the Clippers and Nets ran into a Lakers buzzsaw, right? Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown peaked at the right time and knocked these guys off, you know? Like, I still have hope for those developments. LeBron James is on the NBA Mount Rushmore. So his accomplishments have to be taken as outliers as well. But the Warriors, the team of the decade, built it from scratch. Then they imported Kevin Durant, but they built it from scratch. The Celtics are currently building things from scratch over there, right? And that is the good story. That's the stuff you can make a movie out of. That's the stuff you can make the last dance out of. I'm not going to want to watch a, a last dance on James Harden drama. Like off-court James Harden drama where he feuded with this teammate, then feuded with this teammate, then feuded with this teammate, then demanded a trade, then feuded with that teammate, and then won it all with two other top 15 players. It's like, that's not the story. So if you're tuning in for the story, the, jur the jury is still out on whether we will uh, see that 10 years from now, whether it will go back to the on-court story or whether the NBA becomes the sport of the internet, the sport of Twitter, yeah. the sport of Reddit. I, I think that's such a great way to frame it. I hadn't even really thought about the legacy kind of aspect of this. And to me, you know, everything we've been talking about, it's, it's the chasing of cheap calories. Right, it's the chasing of something that's that's that seems great in the moment, but you just crystallize this for me. It's like, will it last? And I tend to err on the side of you know, uh, one player staying in one team for a long time. That's that's really how you know people fall in love with the sport and fall in love with the team and and build those those relationships and that affinity for for an organization that that carries them through and makes them pay attention even after that guy retires and even after the team gets bad um i you know i, I want to pause for a second and say i hope we don't come off as as too much of get off my lawn you know because i think we we laugh as much as all about all these jokes um you know and, and the, the drama like i i still i still find it enjoyable so i don't want to be hypocritical here but I, I do think you make a great point about, you know, sports is legacy a lot of the time, right? It's, it's, it's history and it's, it's tradition as much as it is now, you know, it's comparing to the past and it's, it's, you know, having reverence for, for those who have come before and, and done great things and seeing if those now can, can stack up. And so uh, I think that's a great point about, we'll see if, if this, 
you know, new era and, and the trends and the direction that it's going will allow for that, you know, to happen when this is all old news. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I sure hope it does. I really yeah. sure hope it does. And like, like one last sort of example, like I, I know this would be a great place to end this conversation because we kind of put some good closing statements out there. But another example that just came to my head is uh, Shaq and Kobe. Mm. Two of the defining basketball players and personas of our two lifetimes, right? Of these last, these last 20, 25 years in the NBA, right? And Shaq bounced around teams. Couldn't do it in Orlando, did it in LA, worked his way out of LA, did it in Miami, and then bounced around teams at the end of his career, right? And now he's on Inside the NBA, starring as uh, one of the four clowns in Twitter's favorite show, right? And so he may have a little bit more of that, like, staying power in our Twitter world, but Shaq doesn't hold a candle to Kobe in terms of his following and fandom, right? The entire city of LA and an entire generation of basketball fans worships Kobe Bryant. A lot of people don't. He did some bad things. He wasn't always the best person, but he played for the Lakers his entire career. He won championships. He went through losing seasons and is one of the most beloved athletes by a city of all time, right? And so did Shaq collect a bunch of accolades? Yes. Was his peak more unstoppable than Kobe's? Yeah. Who is, who is more beloved? Who has that better legacy and who's got a better story? Kobe yeah. Bryant. No, that's, that's, that's a beautiful you know, way to, to sum this all up because I'm not sure if today is the anniversary um, of his passing, but the, I've seen, you know, a lot of tributes to him lately uh, online and, and what a, what a perfect way to, to tie this up with a bow. So as Nolan said, we could keep talking and ranting and raving about this subject and the state of the NBA and, and what it means to be an entertainment product in, in the modern social media age but we don't want this to drag on all day. So we're gonna cut it off there. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been another edition of the Hockey Assist and you can always look for new episodes dropping every Wednesday morning on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do not forget to like, subscribe and leave a review or reach out to us through our Twitter account at hockey underscore assist. We, we've got some fan interaction that's been happening in the last week, and that was really uh, a great, uh, you know, start for our, our conversation that we talked about wanting to have. So for Nolan Cope, unless you have anything else to add, sir. I'm good, man. This was a pleasure. All right. Well, then, for Nolan Cope, I am Riley Gaucher, checking out of episode six of The Hockey Assist. Have a great day.